The BS Report is a free-flowing conversation that occasionally touches on mature subjects. The BS Report. The BS Report with Ben Simmons. Welcome to the BS Report, taping this on a Tuesday, and it is a little chilly here in Southern California. We had the college football game, the finals, last night. I guess we call it the finals. Chuck Klosterman, the biggest college football fan at Grantland, um, he watched it. I think he was excited about it. What was it? What was your initial impression? Oh, it was fun to watch. Um, I also, uh, you know, I got to say, the last time we did one of these, um, I did not do a very good job of promoting the SEC West in a successful way. <laughs> the last, I, I, I think, since that podcast, everything I've thought about college football has been wrong, except. I did pick last game, last night's game right, but I mean I'm in a college bowl pool with 18 other guys, and I'm in 19th place. You were you were riding the SEC about as much as anyone can ride the SEC in the last. Yeah, podcast. well, I, I still believe it's the best conference, but then everything that happened afterwards just completely obliterated <laughs> my insights. But you right. know that's life. You got to roll the bones, see what happens. You watched the game last night, I'm guessing, right? Didn't you? I watched the last three, which to me is a huge step for college football, the playoff system, because normally I, I I wouldn't have known which game to watch and probably wouldn't have cared. But I really liked having two important January 1st games. It reminded me of what we had when we were growing up, right? Well, not, that, not just that. It made more. It was more than two games because it made the games that TCU and Baylor were in important, too, because right. they had so much more to play for. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it turns out that the playoff was just good in every context. Not only did was it, we did we have a you know an interesting three game playoff. Uh, it did not seem to impact the regular season negatively in any way. Um, it was just across the board good, um, which I would not have said fifteen years ago. I heard ten years ago. You know? So my my theory on what I watched and I watched those three games was that Alabama probably had the best team, but didn't realize Ohio State was going to give them the challenge. It, they I think Ohio State took them by surprise, and and uh, and I'm not sure. Like if if you played that now, and they thought Ohio State was going to be awesome, maybe that game is different. But Ohio State, I guess that's why we have three team, fourteen playoffs. Well, which, okay, well, interestingly, the the injuries to Ohio State's quarterbacks played to their advantage. Yes, I mean you know they, they lost Braxton before the season. Barrett plays great all year long. Seems to be argue, probably arguably the best player in the Big Ten this year. Um, but then when he goes down, they bring Jones in, who's a different kind of player, a much more physical guy. I think that particularly for the Big Ten championship and the playoff against Alabama, they were kind of unsure how to deal with him. Yeah. And then when they played Oregon, um, you know, how do you beat Oregon? Well, you just just got to be tougher than them. You just got to go right at them, and that. Uh, I, I kind of feel like he might be the best of the three now. I think that Braxton and, you know, and, and, and they're, they're better. To, you know, if you want to roll up 55 points against Iowa, they're probably better. But, you know, in situations where it's like third and three, I think you want the guy who no one seems to be able to tackle. And that seems to be this dude. I, now I guess he might go pro. That's what I heard today. Well, you know, I loved it because I, I've been uh... – I've been touting the Ewing theory since 2000 
And this was our first ever double Ewing champion. Everyone oh, wrote them off when Braxton Miller got hurt, and then everyone wrote them off when the second guy got hurt. It was a double oh, Ewing theory. Okay, but tell me this, though. Maybe I'm wrong about this. I always thought that the Ewing theory, as you have proposed it, was based yeah. on the fact that the great player is actually taking away something from the other guy. This really isn't the case here. It's sort of like they had three great quarterbacks, all with slightly different skills. Um, Jones being the most sort of, of disparate, I feel like, uh, you know, Braxton and Barrett are very similar in some ways. But uh, it didn't, you know, swapping these guys out, it's not like it prompt Ezekiel Elliott to necessarily play better, although he played great. It just seems like a, like they happen to have three exceptional quarterbacks. And it, it, if they all were to stay there next year, that would yeah. absolutely be the most fascinating quarterback controversy ever. I can't think of a situation where there were three guys involved that like this. I mean, there are many, many, many situations where there were two guys, you know, competing for the job. You can make an argument for either one. But can you think of a situation, pro or college, where there were three equal, seemingly equal quarterbacks? I can't even think of a situation with three running backs. Well, even if there are, that's that's always to your advantage because you just cycle right. them through. I mean, you know, I, I this is this is such a strange thing. Now, now there the rumors are that you know Braxton because I believe this is the I believe I'm right about this because he would be a graduate student. Um, he can go somewhere and play immediately. So I've heard he was going to Florida State. Texas, a la Russell all. Wilson. Uh, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. And and now the, the this morning, I, I was when I was taking my kid to daycare, I was looking at Twitter, and it seems like all these reports that Jones is considering going to the NFL after only like three and a half games, which seems crazy because in a sense he's a little bit unpolished. But at this point, pro football and college football as games, the way they are played, seems so different that I don't know if it would be an advantage for him to play another year of college. Well, I mean, it's the Dante Exum blueprint that's been set. And now I think this Emmanuel Moutier is going to follow too in the NBA where you show just enough to have your stock be huge. And then you don't do anything to hurt where that stock is. And his stock is really high right now. It actually makes sense for him to come out. Well, it does. I mean, he kind of, he looks like a Dante Culpepper type of player, which is a weird compliment because he had, you know, Culpepper obviously had these awesome years and then some terrible years. And I don't know if that's really, you're giving a guy upside or downside by saying that. But uh, I, the, the way, especially the style that Ohio State plays, I'm not sure that, that spending a year doing that is going to put him in a better position uh, to play NFL quarterback than if he was drafted in the second or third round now, played behind somebody for a year or two. That might be just as good. I, I don't know. But I, I, would, I think it would be extremely interesting if all three guys came back. I really hope that happens. So Todd McShay said that uh... – Cardell Jones, he's uh, he would be a day three pick, and he's he compared him to an extremely raw Ben Roethlisberger. Mm. He should come back, and, unless he thinks he can be like a first rounder or something. Which, if if you're listening to Todd McShay, he doesn't think so. I mean, he's so okay. big. It, it would be interesting. It, like early Culpepper was kind of physically imposing. You know, and we would kind of never seen that before in the NFL. It's somebody who, like defensive linemen, were just bouncing off him. And it does seem like Jones has some of that. But it's hard for me to imagine three and a half college games and then all of a sudden I'm starting for an NFL team. It does seem weird. I mean, I remember when Sanchez left early 
And it, at the time, it seemed like, well, uh, I, you know, potentially, uh, I don't know if playing in, even, you know, that was at USC where they played closer to a pro-style set. It seemed yeah. as though maybe a year there would help him, but, you know, and I think even Pete Carroll was like, don't do it, don't do it. Um, and then he went to the NFL, initially succeeded, and, and I think deterred him, though. Another year would have been good for him. But, like, when you watch Ohio State play, they're not doing anything that's like an NFL team. I mean, you yeah. know, it, it's a lot of, you know, throwing under read option plays and you know, bringing that wide receiver around the bottom. You know, it, just, it doesn't look like anything that he's going to use in the NFL. So I, I'm not sure what good it would do for him to go and, you know, run up a bunch of points against, you know, Minnesota and all these schools at Illinois. I don't know what that would really do for him. But we'll see. I, I mean, I, ho- I, I always want, like, the idea that even Marietta is uh, – considering coming back. I don't think he will, but I mean, that would be fascinating. I just think, see, I think Ohio State was a Ewing 13 because when Braxton Miller got hurt, their their odds to win the title dropped to 40 to 1. So he, it does fit the definition of they lose the quote-unquote marquee guy who they never actually won a title with and then everyone wrote them off. And then after they lost the second guy, you know, that whole narrative started of, oh, crap, we got it. It's too bad Ohio State's even in this Final Four. This is stupid. They have no chance. That whole that whole thing started. So there there was some real Ewing Theory uh, kind of vibes. I, I mean, I don't really know anything about college football, and I just assumed Alabama was going to destroy Ohio State. I think the line was Alabama by, by nine. Oh, I mean, and, I, uh, I, yeah, I, I was shocked. I mean, of, of the of the two games on January first, the two playoff games, I, I got them both wrong. I thought Florida State probably would win that game, um, even though I felt Oregon had more talent, uh, and I thought Alabama would just roll over Ohio State, and I was wrong on both. And then last night, I still felt Oregon was the better team, but I just for some reason it seemed as though kind of the mythical idea of momentum was just on Ohio State's side. Yeah, well, they seemed. Did you see more physical? I actually thought the defining play of that game was when um, the guy, the defense of the front four guy on the, on the um, Ohio State's defense, when he sacked Mariota and kind of followed through on the play. It probably should have been a penalty, but it, he, it, there was a little FU in it and drove him into the ground. And then the, the Oregon guys got the offensive lineman got mad and they ended up, I think one of them got a penalty. But, um, I, to me, that was like the defining play of the game. I thought Ohio State just seemed more physical. Yeah, it, it is. It is odd. You know, Oregon has been very good now for a decade, but as you go through them year by year, pretty rare to find where they won the biggest game they played that year. It does yeah. feel. I mean, I, I think if you're a real football purist, you probably like what happens with Oregon because it seems as though if they're a little better than their opponent. Uh, they just blow their doors off. But yeah. when it gets really equal, it, it, the, the, their philosophy, for whatever reason, kind of crumbles. If you can stop them on first down, that changes everything. They played LSU in like a, the first game of the year uh, a couple years ago, and it seemed as though if, if you could stop them on first down, that was the whole thing. Yeah. And watching them, it reminded me – a little bit of, of the Peyton Manning Colts in the early 2000s where they had this pinball offense, basically, but then they would play the Pats, and the Pats would just kind of throw them around and beat them up. 
And uh, and I thought that's what happened last night. This, the Urban Meyer Jim Harbaugh thing now becomes the most fun college football rivalry, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if particularly if he makes Michigan good fast, and I think that he probably will. I mean, this was just a really good end of the season for the Big Ten in general. Yeah, in it's November, bad, baby. In, in November, it seemed like you would be like, well, boy, can we even view the Big Ten as as good as the ACC? It just seemed like they were, you know, like they were the, the weakest of the Power Five conferences. And not only do they win the title, but they have the most intriguing coach coming in. The guy from Oregon State's now going to Nebraska. I think that he's going to have some success there. It's like Minnesota's getting better. It's like all these weird things are happening at once. And there, it will be the most, although this sort of happened with the Pac 12 a couple of years ago, where they yeah. got all these great coaches in and everyone got excited and then nothing really changed. And then you have the, the possible Penn State post paternal rejuvenations lingering. Mm, yeah, yeah. That could be fun. I, I'm excited. I'm excited for Meyer versus Harbaugh, and I feel like everybody, everybody's got to take sides in that one, which happens sometimes in college sports where there's some rivalry, and even though you don't care about either team, you still feel like fundamentally you have to pick a side. Like I always mm. feel like I've had to pick a side in UNC versus Duke. I don't care about either team, but I feel like I need to take a side, and I've always sided with Carolina. That's definitely the more populist take on that. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean populist? That felt insulting. Well, I, I don't. I just like you when you is that is that insulting? Well, no, I don't know. I, I was. I wanted. Well, I mean, to I guess the opposite it. would be elitist. Well, uh, it's like is either one of those terms positive? <laughs> I guess they're both kind of pejorative. But I mean, it's just that that it, it the, the, the number of people who root for Duke is much, much, much smaller than the number of people who root for North Carolina, even true. though it feels equal when they play. You know, we're doing um. A thirty for thirty called "I Hate Christian Leitner." I saw that about uh, the whole Leitner, which I think people are going to really dig, which is coming uh, March Madness. But he he, it was really three guys that created the Duke thing. I don't even think you could totally blame Coach K, but it was Leitner, it was Hurley, and uh, and uh, Danny Ferry, and that that's the trioka of people that just turned everyone against Duke. And then there was yeah. no going back after after the Leighton Hurley combo. That was it. Yeah, I think that there were guys who didn't like Ferry, but at that time they were still they seemed like they were on the cusp of dominance. You know, they got beat by Louisville the year Ellison was yep. there. I think that was the farthest they went with Ferry. And uh they still seemed definitely second a second tier team compared to North Carolina. And then after Leitner was there, that wasn't the case anymore. Um, I love that Louisville, that was a great era of college basketball where like Purvis Ellison goes to Louisville and gets braces and it's not fishy at all. I thought that was funny. Hey, look at Purvis Ellison's braces, but I'm sure they, I'm sure nobody paid for them. I think it's starting to look now that that was the best era of college basketball. Oh, no question. Well, I mean, I think that period, that, that decade ended up being, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but it seems clear now that that was the best period for college basketball. Well, you and I talk about this sometimes, and I don't want to rehash the conversation, but like Anthony Davis would be a senior at Kentucky right now. He would be a very when you think of it that player. way. It's it's and you know basketball evolves and guys peak a little bit younger, and it's it's stupid to think, you know, the, well, what would happen if this guy was in there and this guy's in there? But it's it just it just shows how much has changed in thirty years because like Ewing stayed all four years in Georgetown. And arguably would have been one of the best five players in basketball if he had 
you know, played the last two years in the NBA for, of his Georgetown experience. Although think- also when, when those guys stayed, it did sort of uh, depress their their talent a bit. I mean, like, no uh, like, like Anthony mean. Davis would not be the player he is now. I agree. Kentucky, no? Yeah, I agree. I, I think it hurt Ewing. I think Ewing should have come out probably after his sophomore year. Like he was just so athletic and, and you know, and, and every game he played, everybody was just jumping on him. You know, it was four, four people coming down and, and closing on him. And it just, you're not going to get better offensively when that's happening. Well, the guy who's hurt the most though was Samson. No he question. Should have won. He should well, he and he it. also had only so many games in his knees too. Who do you, who do you like? Like, if you had to pick a side, Kentucky versus Louisville basketball, who do you pick in that? Do you care? Uh, traditionally, I root for Louisville in that relationship. Yeah. What about UCLA versus USC? Football or basketball? Um, both. I guess actually UCLA for both. Interesting. That's a better rivalry than I think anyone outside of California knows. That's a, uh, it's a really good one. It's really it's that was really a like a genuine hatred. In the 70s. Like in huh? the late seven, in the early seventies for football, that was a big deal. But yeah. it kind of kind of faded as UCLA kind of because it's been a long time since. Like UCLA was looked like they were going to be good this year, and they were kind of paper again. I mean, I don't know. It seems as though that they just they can't get it together. Hey, let's talk about um. Let's talk about Whiplash. Okay, let's talk about it. You told me to see this six, seven weeks ago. And you, you were like, I can't wait for you to see this movie. I would really want to see what you think. And I saw it. I thought it was excellent. I thought it was probably my second favorite. I still like Birdman the most. But I think Whiplash might be second. Well, I just think Whiplash is fascinating because it forwards an idea that you just do not see in the popular culture anymore, which is that sort of like the idea that inhumane, uh, like unacceptable treatment of people sometimes potentially does work. You know, it's like that, that, that might be one way to generate genius because we're, we're kind of at this point now where it's not only do we not accept that as a way, you know, and I mean, I wouldn't want, I kid or anything to be treated that way. Like you don't want that to happen, but we yeah. almost are trying to convince ourselves culturally that it doesn't even work if you do it. Like it's, it's, it's not only is it wrong to do, but uh, it would, it would, it would completely fail. And like this movie basically says that's not true. And, and that there's, and that part of the reason that, you know, America is a different place now than it was 20 years ago or 40 years ago, or whatever is because this is, this idea has disappeared. Yeah, and then the other idea that's emerged, which you haven't fully uh, formed an opinion on yet because your kids aren't old enough, is is the whole the whole soccer culture, which is just terrible. And um, and I, I don't mean soccer is terrible. I just mean like the youth soccer and um, don't keep score. Everybody gets to play. There's no winners and losers out here. There's no goalies, and, and it's just. This mentality, I'm seeing it with my daughter's school now. Like they had all these kids try out for volleyball um, and they ended up splitting it in the two teams. And instead of having an A team and a B team, which you'd think they would have in the fourth grade, it's just these two evenly split teams and everybody gets to play the same minutes. And I don't know if that's a good thing. Well, I, I, I like think that, that it's 
I, it doesn't bother me as long as they don't sort of position this as sport. They position it as activity. That's fine. I right. mean, like a little a little six year old kid, a seven year old kid uh, playing soccer. I mean, I guess it, it, it's fine if it's just sort of running around and, and essentially playing tag with a ball, and all, that's cool. But like that that's a separate thing than what sports are. Like that's an activity, yeah. um, and I, you know, and that's uh, like an aerobic activity. So, uh, you know, but I certainly that there's a, an element of that sort of in the thinking behind whiplash. I think that uh, it's just uh, like I'm not even I know when I, I kind of explain it that way, like I'm promoting the theme of this movie. And I don't know if I necessarily promote it. I just think that it is interesting to, to just sort of wonder if the more human our society has come, like obviously there's a downside to everything. So what yeah. will we lose from sort of humanizing the way um, uh, we treat people in sort of the teacher-pupil relationship? Right. And the fundamental I, – I don't want to give away the entire movie, but the, the, the fundamental conflict of the movie is the teacher believes that this is a way to push somebody to true greatness. But then the counter to that is, well, what if you're also pushing somebody away from true greatness? And That's, yeah. and how do you know what's the best? And maybe it's the best thing for each person. But, you know, you think about like, it, like if I join the military, one of the ways they train prospects, like let's say I wanted to go into the Navy SEALs when I was 18. You go in there, they, this is kind of like the whiplash way is kind of the way they weed out the people that can't handle it, right? And that hasn't changed at all. Well, you know, and there the stakes are different. I mean, yeah, much you know, different. If, if if a person can can literally be killed <laughs> by yeah. by being unprepared, uh, you know, is it somehow is it in any way to his benefit to sort of hide that kind of intensity from him, even if it's dehumanizing? I I don't know. I, these are actually questions I hate thinking about in a way. I mean, I guess I like thinking about them, but I don't like thinking about what they actually mean. Right. Well, the, the my point is. That, the military has never changed how they train people, but yet we've trained we've changed how we we train, say, athletes. You know, and you don't have like think about like Woody Hayes. Like Woody Hayes was was uh, such a tough coach that his career ended because I forget what bowl game it was. They pulled it was the, I, it had it a was Gator Bowl. He punched a kid from Clemson. <laughs> Punch, he punched a kid from the other team. That's how crazy he was. How high wired he was. Those coaches are kind of just out. Yeah, I, those coaches I, you know, anymore. The, uh, I think it's uh, I'm get this wrong. Coached K State for a while. The basketball coach Martin is his last name. He's a crew cut. I'm not sure where he's at now. He's no longer at Kansas State. Um, but he seemed to be the closest version of that that was still kind of in the modern age. Um, but it it, it 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 is that is kind of gone. I mean, I just. Uh, uh, and I mean, I don't know. It, it seems like a weird thing to be nostalgic for in a way, like to miss the idea of a Woody Hayes type person in the world. But I, I, I don't know. Something, something tells me that that, you know, that that kind of personality connects us to a reality that we're just trying to pretend does not exist and really has not changed. Well, think about. I mean, you know, I would think of the NFL, for example. I was just thinking about. I was going to say it that. Looks, no, it looks like, it. You know. You know, for all the attempts to sort of change football because of, 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 you know, can we make this game less violent in a way? Can we make it so that 
Uh, it doesn't seem like the sort of, you know, concussion-oriented death trap or whatever. But, like, when it looks to me like the Super Bowl is going to be Seattle and New England. And outside of quarterbacks, I think there's a very limited number of players who can really sort of dominate a game by themselves. And I feel like Marshawn Lynch and Gronkowski are two of the only ones. And when you get right down to it, it's not really skill-based. It's purely physical-based. Yeah. I mean, they're skilled guys. But really, when we get down to the end here, it is simply who cannot be tackled. You know, And those are two guys who, at times, cannot be tackled. Well, and then you have the, the three Seattle D-backs who are all terrific. There's a physicality with them that I think, you know, worries me as a Patriot fan because I think especially Chancellor is going to go into that Super Bowl if it happens. I don't want to jinx it, but they're going to go into that game thinking like, we got to hit the hell out of Gronkowski. So that's actually going to feel like an old school football. They're going to be like, we get every time Edelman goes over the middle, we're, we're killing him. And that's going to be the mentality they have. So it, it does have a little bit old school. I thought you were going the direction of the NFL is probably the closest we have to those old school dipping into the whiplash type of level of coaches. And I think, it does seem like reading the Jim Harbaugh stories, everybody talks about, well, he wears you out. He's at three years and you're done. And you just, and it does seem like there's a little element of that with him where he's just pushing guys and pushing guys and exploding and getting mad and freaking out. And there's some sort of a shelf life, especially with guys who are getting paid, you know, a lot of money to play football. And at some point they just start tuning those people out. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's like how how much emotional manipulation will you accept? It seems as though many, many players will accept it for one or two years in all sports. Yeah. It seems like a guy can come in, a Bill Musselman-type character can come in and just get in guys' minds and, 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 and sort of push their feelings around, sort of push the way they think around, uh, and that will work. And then it just always just eventually fades. I guess maybe what happens is at some point you realize that that it's really the illusion of threat. That what these yeah. guys are sort of suggesting, they really can't even come through on because their job is on the line too. They can't stop playing the best players regardless of how they respond to their sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of a, a emotional tactic. Tibbs is a, like that. Tibbs is like that in Chicago. Everybody's been saying for the last 24 months that, oh, he's, he's worn those guys down. Oh, he's, he's just every game. He's plays like it's game seven. He's those guys. And yet when you watch them, you know, they've had moments this year where they looked as good as anybody. And that's just how he does it. He, to him, every game matters equally. And he's always trying to win and he's going to leave his guys out. And he does the anti Popovich of, he's not going to be like, Hey, Noah, just take tonight off. You know, we've had four and five nights. I want to, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. He goes the other way. Um, Popovich, I think, is kind of blends all the worlds. Like, he's the most player-friendly coach, but he's also the guy that if he yelled at you, your feelings would be hurt the most, you know? Well, and you know, and, and he, for the most part, has a team that comes from different cultures. I yeah. think maybe maybe cultures that are still, um, I don't know, I thought, you know, it's always different to be yelled at by somebody from a different country. <laughs> if you've right. ever had this experience, it, you know, it's one thing to be yelled at from a guy who speaks your language and sounds like you, but when somebody from a different country yells at you, it feels different. Yeah. Right. I wonder, Have like, a, uh, 
as we, especially like the NBA coach. Like I'm watching now with Doc Rivers. He's who makes a ton of money and has won a ring, so he carries a certain amount of respect. He's in control of the players and the Clippers, and yet can't get them to really play hard every game. And there's just games like that I've gone to where it doesn't seem like they like each other and they're not really invested and he doesn't totally know what to do. And it makes me think like coaching professional athletes who make a lot of money has to be up there on the most, on the toughest jobs. I think we actually take it for granted. Like think about the situation David Black got put in. Mm. <laughs> He's got to deal with LeBron coming home. He's got to figure out how to handle the most famous basketball player and the best basketball player of the last 20 years. He's got Kevin Love who's coming in, who has all these strengths and weaknesses um, that are really dramatic one way or the other, who has never been kind of a supporting guy in his life. He's got Kyrie Irving, who's this point guard who's really just selfish. Like he just goes for his own offense. He doesn't care about setting up anyone else. So you got to deal with him. Then you got Dan Waiters, who's a maniac who thinks he's probably the best guy in the team. He's a rational confidence guy. You have no rim protection. You have these incredibly high expectations and you've never coached before. What is a tougher job than that? Well, and, and I think that you, you ignored the toughest part yet. I mean, imagine if you were trying to run Grantland and you were making $75,000 a year. And Sean right. Fantasy is making $600,000 a year. And you know that if things crater, Disney will fire you. Right. I mean, how, how do you do yeah, that? What, what, how many other jobs does the boss make so much less than the employee? Right. <laughs> and has I mean, no so leverage. Yeah. And yeah. then you have, so he's in there and, and it's the 24-7 NBA coverage era. I'm not defending Blatt, by the way. I don't think he's done a good job, but I also think he was put in an impossible job. But it's the, the Twitter era. It's the overreact after every loss era. It's the what's wrong with the Cavs after they lose two games era. Um, everyone's just, just the microscope is so large and to just go through that day after day after day. And then a month in LeBron's, LeBron's agent, Rich Paul hires Mark Jackson as a client. And so now you <laughs> got to worry about that. You have Tyron Liu, who's the highest paid assistant coach in the league. He's your right hand man, but you don't really have a relationship with him, but you know, he's friendly with the guys. And now people are putting YouTube clips of the player's watching Ty Lu and ignoring you and that's on YouTube and Reddit and all these places. That's weird. You know, I just think I, I wouldn't want to be an NBA coach. I think it I, is, but you know, also oh my just God. one thing I'll say about this is if you go back and look at the coverage of the first two months of the heat when LeBron went there, right. There was a lot Same of questions. Thing. Too. Like I, I, I think that because especially because they're in the, heat, they're pretty safe. Here's the it's difference though, but here's the difference. That Miami team, Spolstra had Riley. And he also had a team that made sense. It, the, the only question with that Miami team was, can LeBron and Wade figure out who's the alpha dog? And it took them until the second season, until it really fe until that part fell into place. But athletically, they were great. Defensively, that team was really good. You know, they were up 2-1 in the finals. They, they started out the first 17 games. I think they were 9-8. And after that, they took off. This Cavs thing... The team's never made sense. Um, they've never really played well for more than two or three games, and it just seems fundamentally flawed. And it it's a classic case of putting your team together before the season starts, which a lot of teams try to do, where they're just like, we got to get our team ready. And then sometimes you don't have to do that. You know, you can kind of 
see what you have and make a trade here and keep going and see what you have. It's almost like the Red Sox are doing this now weirdly with their starting rotation. They don't have a number one starter. And my dad and I are like, ah, who's our number one starter? We're freaking out. But at the same time, like, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. Play two months without a number one starter, then go trade for one. You know, everyone tries to finish their team before the season. What condition do you think the Cavs would be in if they had not made the move, made Wiggins and Bennett there with LeBron? Well, I, you know, we were talking about doing uh, something about this for the Grandland Basketball Show about what would the Cavs look like if they had literally done nothing after they signed LeBron? Right now they'd have, you know, one of the dumbest things they did was they signed Verge out of an extension for reasons that remain unclear. He would have been a really big, valuable, expiring contract. Um, Wiggins, I I see it both ways. Like I wrote a piece about I didn't think they should have traded him. Um, I, or I, I didn't think they, I thought they should have kept him for a couple months and see what they had. But at the same time, like they were able to get Kevin Love for him, who's a top 10 player. And you always take the guaranteed sure thing over the hypothetical guy. So I could see their point. But man, if you look back and it's like, Wiggins is really coming on now. I don't know. You probably haven't seen, but like the last two weeks, no, he's, starting I, I, to, he's starting I, I, to figure it he's out. Also, he's on my fantasy team, so I've been yeah. following him real closely. He's starting to figure it out. Like the light bulb went off. Um, I, I, I don't you feel like that by if you if you keep Wiggins and you put him with LeBron, uh, you're really setting up your franchise for ten or twelve years. You're essentially putting him in a position where he can be sort of like uh, you know the, like like the second guy LeBron. And then eventually become the man. I just, to me, I, I, that's what I was in favor of. But then no one else seemed to feel that way. I mean, I, I, everybody seemed like exactly what you said that if you have a chance to get love, you got to do it. Um, even though, uh, you know, w- w- what is the most success he's ever had anywhere? Well, so they also gave up three first round picks because they gave up one in the. Um in the love trade and then two for Mozgov, which was the funniest trade in about four years. Mozgov, <laughs> that was ridiculous. That was, that was a, an all time panic trade. Oh, but, well, uh, I, just, I think that they're panicking in general. They feel like we got to do this now that, that they're just suddenly realizing that they are not set for the future. And maybe they're not even so secure about how long LeBron is going to be there. Well, everybody thinks love's going to leave. I mean, that that's the under the radar basketball story right now is everybody in the league is talking about, where is love going to go? Like he seems miserable. It seems like LeBron hates playing with him. Him and Kyrie have not clicked. And we're heading toward a world where if, if love leaves, if he just says, screw this, I'm out of here and goes signs with the Lakers um, or the Knicks or wherever the hell he goes. And then uh, now it's just LeBron and Kyrie and Mozgov and no first round picks and Tristan Thompson, who everyone thinks is going to get overpaid because he has the same agent as LeBron. And, you know, LeBron would weirdly be, in a very similar situation to the one where that he left in the, in 2010, where he's kind of, they were kind of stuck with this roster that they couldn't fix. Um, it, but this time it was all his fault. Cause we all know LeBron's green lighting these moves. He doesn't come back unless he knows they're getting Kevin love. You know, I think that we all, everyone thinks that was part of the whole thing. So the lesson is don't let your players pick your players. Hey, I wanted to ask you a little bit about a story. I feel, uh, not God, much attention. You've been following this Rob Conrad story? Yes. It's one um, of those where my detector went off immediately. It just seems like there's more to the story. 
Oh, really? So you're okay. That that wasn't going to be my angle. I didn't have a conspiracy on this. No, I, I was, you know, I, I always gravitate toward conspiracy. Oh, sure, sure, sure. I I would love to hear whatever conspiracies about this you have. I just for people who don't know, this is a guy who played. He was a fullback for the Dolphins. Uh, the reason I thought you might know is I think he's from Boston. But yeah. maybe you'd follow for that reason. But he's out fishing. He's this big fisherman. Uh, falls off his boat and swims 16 hours to shore. Um, you know, so uh, I was curious, like, uh, how, how long could you swim to live? <laughs> I'm just wondering, like, if you... I That's mean, the chuckiest you know, Chuck question in a while. Well, well it's like, you you know, because you know, he's like, he's thinking about his wife, he's thinking about his kids. I imagine you in the same position, you know? You've got, you've got a lot to live for, you know? You've got a lot of responsibilities. You love right. your life. How long could you swim to live? Well, I think, see, I think in that situation, sometimes it's not up to what you want mentally and how bad you want it. If your body shuts down, it's over. Yes. Like if you get hypothermia, it doesn't matter how much you want to live. Like your body's shutting down and all of a sudden you start seeing stars and then you're half conscious and then all of a sudden you're you're done. So I, I don't even know. I mean, I think it would be, the first few hours, it would be the, the will of the whole thing. But then after that, you have to get lucky. He was he must have been in good shape, I'm guessing. I thought that well, was he, the weirdest story. That story was so weird, I was almost like, all right, the, so what's the other shoe that's going to drop with this? This is an inc- this guy falls off his fishing boat, which was on automatic pilot, and swims 16 hours back to shore. What the hell is going on? Well, so, uh, I swim I, nine I, miles. I, I am, okay, now you now I'm really curious, okay. Let's, what are the possible conspiracies? First of all, what, what what you think this was some attempt to what? I don't know. I just thought it was a crazy. I've never heard of a story like that. I just thought. Well, it, well yeah. You, you, I mean, you've heard of stories. People have been lost and had to walk a long ways or something. That guy gets his arm caught underneath a rock, cuts off his arm with a knife. That dude, you know, the, uh, these things happen. I mean, I just I, I always I always like these stories because I always wonder, you know, how would I. Uh, behave in this scenario, and I just I really fear that like uh, not just, well, but I, that I that in fact I kind of fear I might give up. Like like I, I I worry about how about how intense my will to live is. And, you know, of course I want everybody wants it to be intense, but right. Yeah. Well, it's there was a real sports story I remember from a few months ago about a bunch of college college football buddies who went on yep. a boat trip and they were all stuck in the water and one of them ended up going down and that it was a hypothermia thing. You know, I, I, I think you want to live for as long as your brain's working, but I, I, then, then you kind of run out of choices, but like the, what was the Franco movie where he cut off his arm? Yeah. That's what I was talking about. Uh, that's uh, another one, right? Where you're sitting yeah. there like, all right, what would I do? I, I almost feel like that's a better option because that one is now your choice. Are you willing to cut off your arm to live? Would you yeah. do that? Would you go through the pain of so cutting off that, your arm to live? Do you or think would you, just, if, what? Well, that maybe this is an interesting related question. What would you feel more comfortable doing to live? Cutting off your arm with a pocket knife or swimming 16 hours? For me, it's what very that? easy. I can't, I can't swim. I would die, so I would cut off anything. I, I, I would have no choice, but... I, th- I think people underestimate how hard it would be to swim for that long if you hadn't really been doing that much swimming. Who's underestimating it? <laughs> well, I'd, see, I'd, I'd have a better chance. I'd have a better chance with the pocket knife because I have contacts on. 
so me and contact lenses trying to swim for 16 hours, I would, I would say I'm going to be at the bottom. Don't you have a disposable? No, but I, I mean, I'm in the water. Like the water's hitting my eyes. Like at some point. Yeah, I know, but I, I would think at one happen. point. So you, you don't feel, I mean, my eyesight is terrible, but you feel that you would need your contacts to see. You're swimming basically in one direction toward the light. I'm blind. I wouldn't even be able to see the light. I'd be done. I'd be out. This is why I don't go fishing. <laughs> he also said that he, he like he showed up wherever he landed, like went to a house and rang the doorbell at four thirty. But that was an interesting conversation. Hey, can I can I borrow a towel? <laughs> the uh, my my wife likes to do this with movies. My wife likes any movie where she can put herself in the situation of somebody who's in danger. Like we watched No Good Deed this weekend. Uh, which is a terrible movie. It's a pay-per-view movie, but it's strangely watchable because Stringer Bell's in it, and uh, it's it's and uh, I like I like uh, I can't I can't remember how you pronounce her first name, but Henson, who's now on the uh, Empire show, but um, it's basically this this crazy serial killer basically is uh, gets out, he escapes, crashes his car as he's going to somebody's house, and go rings her doorbell. And then she just lets him in to make a phone call. And it's one of those, as Wesley Morris calls it, a blank from hell movie. It's like the nanny from hell. The serial killer shows up at your door from hell and so on. And my wife loves those movies. And okay, I'm so, not one of those put myself in the situation. Well, here's what I can say. If this, is, if this is what you and your wife like to do, like to watch movies and then kind of put yourself into the film, no, no, I, have a like I have a recommendation for oh, you. Oh, good. Okay. Watch the movie. Force majeure. I think I might be pronouncing it right. It's a, it's a, it's it's force m a j e u r e. I'm pretty sure it's a Swedish movie, but uh, it it's about a, a couple and their son and their daughter go on a skiing trip, oh. and something interesting happens. And uh, I think yeah, I would I would I would enjoy hearing uh, your sort of uh, familial reaction to this. Well, my wife likes the Naomi White's the Naomi Watts tsunami movie, where the um, family gets split up. That's like her kind of movie. She's like, yeah. "What would I do? But you weren't there, and the kids went another way. Like, how would I? You know, she likes this. Those. Is this is slightly different because it involves? Well, it depends how you look at it. You can say it involves a choice on the Choices. behalf of the husband, or uh, it proves that on some and there are certain issues we have no choice and we just react. Yeah, it's role playing when your choices have been taken away from you. I guess <laughs> she, she's always like, "Here's what I do." We, we rented that at like eleven o'clock one of those one of those last two nights of the weekend, just because we've gotten all these. I, I've seen almost every 2014 movie now. You know, we get all the screeners, and and it's such a serious year of movies. These movies are just getting weightier and weightier and weightier, and 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 like. I have no idea why they made the Jolie movie. Unbreakable or Unbroken, whatever the hell it's called. Uh, it's about this guy who who made the Olympics and didn't even like win a medal. Um, well, I mean that then, was that was a, that was an extremely popular book. Uh, no, I know. I totally get. Book. I totally get. It was a great book. People loved it. But I'm just telling you what happens in the movie. He he's he's an Olympian. Goes to war, it crashes. They're in the water with sharks for a half hour. Then he goes in a, in a camp. He gets tortured for another hour, and then he gets out. And the movie ends. It's like, what the hell just happened? 
I just, I just watched somebody suffer for two hours. What was fun about this? I don't uh, get those you, uh, movies. Maybe I'm too old. Did you see Citizen Four? No. Citizen Four is the documentary about Edward Snowden. That's worth oh, seeing. You like I guarantee that one? you. Well, you know, the thing about it is, is, is I, I had sort of, I still have mixed feelings about the whole idea of privacy and all these things, but I had very mixed feelings about Snowden. But seeing this documentary, I would say my mixed feelings are no longer mixed. It's pretty hard to watch this movie and not feel like, it, at, at the very least, this person's motives uh, are good, <laughs> and that, mm. that he is not crazy, and that he is not attempting to sort of uh, uh, somehow benefit from doing this. It's like, his motives are pretty good. And it, it even though a lot of the movie are, are just like people sitting in a hotel room looking at a laptop, it's surprisingly compelling. Did, uh, did you see Inherent Vice? I was curious what you thought of that. That's one of the last ones I need to see because I think we're doing a Grantland Oscar show. Um, Are you all going to wear tuxedos? Wesley and Chris Connolly. You I'm should sure, all wear tuxedos. Sure. That seems like a very, like a very Grantland, uh, like a Oscar move to make. Yeah. I have a couple. I have the the PT Anderson movies. It's really tough for me to get past like how uh, the PT Anderson and uh, and the Wes Anderson, the, the fans of those movies. So they the treat them differently. They, that, that's true. They treat them because the movie because they're 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 sort of different filmmakers. I, I mean, I, yeah. yeah. Well, but they the benefit of the doubt they get from people who love those directors and think they're geniuses, which they probably are. In P.T. Anderson's case, definitely. Um, it's I feel like they could release anything, and and those people would defend the movie. Well, I really want to know what P.T. what P.T. Anderson movie could he make that the P.T. Anderson fans and I'm looking at you Sean Fantasy who's just gotten two shout outs in the same podcast somehow. But what PT Anderson movie could he make? PT Anderson could have made No Good Deed, No Good Deeds, whatever that Stringer Bell movie is. And and I feel like that the PT Anderson well, well, well he's I, I satirizing can, the whole blank from hell I, culture. Yeah, well that's the thing. I mean once you make enough really great pieces of art, then any yeah. art you make becomes meaningful. It doesn't matter how good it is. I mean, like, like at this point, you can go through and watch any Woody Allen movie. And yeah. some of the Woody Allen movies over the last 50, 20 years have been horrible. Uh, if, you, if you see them in a vacuum. But because yeah. he made them, then basically it's like, well, here's a way for me to access what I think is what drives him or, or his view of the world or why would he choose to make this of all the things he could make? Why that, you know, so like yep. it, it kind of makes uninteresting things captivating, you know? Um, I mean, Wes Anderson's a little different because I feel like people who are into Wes Anderson are really into that aesthetic and they just want to see that aesthetic in movies and yeah. he does it Great. the best. Good luck um, to all of them. <laughs> well, like, did you like the master? Well, you know, the master, I, first of all, yes, but I need to qualify that by saying that after There Will Be Blood, which was probably the most I was affected that by movie a film in the theater in a long yeah. time, that now when I see a P.T. Anderson movie, and he's the only director like this, I actually go in with the expectation that this might be the best movie I've ever seen. So when right. I went to the master and I was also, you know, I'm really, as I'm sure we've talked about, I'm really interested in the kind of the culture of Scientology. And I, I thought, well, boy, you know, this is, this is going to be something, this is going to be a real 
this is going to this is going to illustrate something about Scientology I'd never before considered or whatever. And it really wasn't a big part of the film. Um, yeah. And as a result, I was a little disappointed. Then I saw The Master again on TV. And I thought, well, this is a really good movie. Um, but it was the same way with Inherent Vice. I mean, I, I went into this film thinking that if this isn't the best movie I saw this year, uh, it's a letdown, which is kind of an unfair sort of way to look at a guy, but that's how I am. He's like like when you go to see LeBron James once a year. Well, not maybe not anymore. I don't know if that's a different point of his career now, but um, where you just think like this guy's the goat, and I'm going to see him score 45 points and 50. Yeah, I mean it'd be like if I went to a track meet that Usain Bolt was running and he won, yeah. but he ran like a nine nine eight. Like I would be pretty disappointed. Well, the other thing, and this happened with Woody Allen too, when a director gets a point where they can work with any actor they want. So now they're just getting the cream of the crop of talented actors. And those people can often save something that maybe wasn't that good or was Although typically these guys, when they get to that point, it's like, you know, P.T. Anderson kind of keeps the same stable, like, uh, like yeah. Scorsese usually uses DiCaprio now. I mean, it's, they're, uh, it, they, they, they sort of kind of, I think go into these projects with an idea of who will be the star, knowing that they can potentially get that star. And that might make it slightly easier to be good. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, to answer your question, I've not seen inherent vice yet because I need to be in the emotional right frame of mind for it. Cause my expectations are going to be high, but like I thought the master was incoherent and I know everybody can make, it makes their case the other way and Oh, it really meant this. And it's like, it's a freaking movie that nobody is that good. It reminds me of, when uh, the Sopranos final scene, when people broke down frame by frame what everything in the final scene meant, it's like, David Chase isn't that good. I'm sorry. No human being is that good that they put that much thought into every single aspect of this diner scene. It's, it's like, stop it. It's ridiculous. Okay, with two questions. Uh, first, would you say, give me an example of a movie you have liked that you would argue did not have narrative coherence. Like, is it, I mean, cause it might be, and, and this is a totally reasonable argument to make, but like some people just don't like a movie that involves a great deal kind of, of unclarity or cognitive distance or whatever. Is there a movie you like that you don't understand what happens in it? Mm. Eyes Wide Shut. Okay. Okay. I That's don't know a, what the f happened in that movie, but I really liked it. And it's yeah, weird. Yeah, that movie has aged well, actually. It's really aged well, and the really Cruz Kidman stuff is fascinating. And the I don't know. The argument they have early in that movie. Oh, it's great. great. It's, the, uh, it's, it's so weird, and, and I feel like Kubrick's trying to tell me something much bigger than what the movie's about, but I can't figure out what it is because I'm not smart enough. So I think he was. I, I My theory, which I'm not the only person who has this, is that, that something disturbed him about Cruz and Kidman's marriage. He decided to break them up. That's interesting. Here's the second question I want. Well, to how about ask. hold on, back on Eyes Wide Shut for a second. Cruz basically took almost two years out of his career in his prime to film that movie because he wanted to work out with Kubrick. I think this is like one of the most interesting things Cruz ever did because he was at his peak. He had just done Jerry Maguire. He had, he he had now had a 15 year career of of. Uh, just killing it. He was a commercial actor. He'd been nominated for an Oscar. He'd been in a, a bunch of iconic from a pop culture standpoint movies. And then now comes off the most likable movie he's ever made where everybody's like, Tom Cruise is a great actor. He still has it. 
and then he disappears for two years. Very reminiscent of of almost like Jordan going to play baseball. Like Cruz, like you know what? I'm 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 flipping the switch here. I'm gonna go make eyes wide shut, and I'm gonna follow that with Magnolia. Well, right, it's like he yeah. could have just kept ripping off blockbusters. But, but why would and then he, I think I he think, realized, like, ooh, I screwed that up. I'm going to start doing the Mission Impossible series and go back yeah, to I the commercial think, time I, I, I mean, I think that it's a, that, it's, that he made the right call on, on every level. Me I too. Mean, yes, he could have. He could have kept making movies that would have been commercially successful, and that he would have been the kind of actor that uh, you know a lot of uh, that, that a certain kind of person would like until they become maybe more serious about film or whatever, but he felt I'm becoming a person who's more serious about film and well, I, arguably the great, I mean, certainly the greatest American director of the 20th century yes. wants me. Unless, I mean, unless you go like Count Ford or something, but it's like, he's like, this guy wants to use me in this movie. And, uh, and, and Kubrick was obviously, I mean, like a lot of the stuff in there is also Kubrick really examining the perception or the reality that Tom Cruise is gay. And he's like putting that in the movie, and Cruz is letting him. So like you, buy, never, you buy that theory? Oh well, I mean, there's there's a couple scenes that are just. I mean, every, you know, like when 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 Tom Cruise goes to a that, that hotel to get advice, like every person in the movie seems like they're coming on to Tom Cruise. You're Watch right. the movie again sometime. Every person he interacts with is flirting with him, and this is sort of a, uh, I think Kubrick commenting on how he believes Cruise perceives him and how he perceived reality. I just, I think that movie is, is in some ways, if you want to have an issue with it, it's almost, you could argue, unethical of Kubrick to have done this. But I mean, you know, like with The Shining, he basically, uh, you know, tried to break an actress's mind. You know, it's like he's, he's willing to do that. He was willing to do that to sort of do these, these uh, mental games with the cast. Well, you know, um, Paul Thomas Anderson did that. We, we revealed in the oral history Boogie Nights scene, uh, the oral history of Boogie Nights, the scene with the firecrackers and the drug deal gone wrong. And he just basically like they're throwing firecra- firecrackers for two days trying to drive the actors crazy. And then he gets the famous shot of Wahlberg just zoning out with that psycho look on his face. <laughs> and that was the result of two days of <laughs> tormenting. His, I mean, it goes kind of goes back to our whiplash thing of you got to torment people to get their best performance. In that case, it happened. Uh, the second question I wanted to ask you, uh, which is not totally related, but uh, did you watch? And maybe you've already talked about this on a podcast, and I missed it. Did you watch the affair? I did. I've, and, I have, uh, have discussed this on a podcast. Um, did you discuss with Andy or something? Because I, I think Andy did not so much like it, and you did. Is that accurate? Yeah. Well, Andy was watching it incorrectly. Yeah. I, uh, I, I kind of, I started watching it in the middle, um, and I really liked it. Um, however. Uh, something happened with that show that I, now I'm I'm kind of troubled by. Here's what I thought. Tell me, and, and I, I'd, I'd be interested in your response to this. Like when yeah. I started watching, here's what I thought it was. I thought it was two people basically describing the exact same event, and we were supposed to sort of understand how memory is different and how conversations are different. Um, but that that the event was the same. That everything that happened to one character also happened to the other character. But as it moved along, that seemed to not be the case. It almost seemed like they were experiencing two totally different realities. And that made me like it slightly less. In the last episode, that's her version of whatever happened and his version of whatever happened was just too different. 
Yeah. I like the concept of people like I remember it happening this way and then people remembering things in their own favor, which yeah. I think is what that was about. The last or episode time, or was times to their own self-criticism. Like they but remember he, things about themselves, you know, and there was all supposed to be all these interesting details that I like I, apparently in this, like his memories, like, like she wears different bras. There were like supposed to be all these little things kind of built in about how yeah. we would remember an event. Um, so I, but I, so I was kind of, I thought this is, this is kind of poorly written at times, but I thought the concept is great. Uh, but now I don't know how I feel about it. Anymore. Well, I think you, I think Here's here would be my take on that. I think the goal was the the takes are different, but they're different because this is what they're telling the police person. So it's their story. So it's not like whatever their reality was, but it's also like here's the story they're actually telling the police person crossed with the version that favors them was how I interpreted it. So the fact that that last episode was so strange and so out of whack from her version versus his version means now that somebody's lying or it's a terribly written show. I mean, that's, that's an interesting thing. You think, so you're saying that, that over time it will unspool that one of these stories is real. Yeah. Do you uh, really what? think state, you think Stanley Kubrick was like, I want to destroy Tom Cruise mentally. That's the best I, thing uh, you've said to me in like two years. They, it totally changes, but now I have to watch that movie again. Yeah. I think that, I think that he, uh, that he, was going on to work with Tom Cruise for the work he had seen in Cruise's other films. And upon meeting him, concluded that this person is crazy. He's a, he, that, that, that he has a, uh, he is, uh, you know, that, that everything about him is, is artifice and that there is no real person here. And he's in this sham marriage with this person who I think he probably thought was pretty charming. Um, and he was like, they shouldn't be together. And I don't even know if this guy is straight. I think he's using, you know, but, but it's not like Nicole Kidman's his beard. It's like she is just she's unknowingly uh, trapped in this incredibly uh, you know, kind of tragic relationship, and he essentially used the movie to to destroy their marriage and succeed it. I, I mean, now wow. do I have any proof of this? I have no, no proof of this. But, but I, you, you know, when you make a movie that that's that that is that weird and that weirdly affecting, um, you're going to have weird theories come out of it. I, I thought it was Mark Maron did a podcast with Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, that's like two hours long. And, uh, in that, in that podcast, at some point he starts talking about Magnolia and he's talking about basically, it was definitely too long. I didn't know how to do it myself at that point. I thought that was a really interesting, um, concession for him to make that he looks back at that movie now and he has like real regrets about how, how he handled it and how he edited it versus what I mean, actually I think happened. What, what I'm, what I'm guessing, I don't know if he said this, I haven't listened to this podcast, but it sounds pretty interesting. People have told me it's good. But um, he maybe added one more narrative arc than, than necessary. Like yeah. maybe he could have removed the John C. Riley stuff. But once you have these people in the movie, and they're so good, I mean, everybody's good in that movie, that you would never think about editing them out of the film. You just got to kind of have it there. Um, you know, well, that, and that's that's something that happens to directors, I think, all the time, where they they have some actor they really like or some part they really like, and it doesn't make sense in the movie, but they feel bad about cutting it out. Well, that's why all these action movies, the CGI action movies, are so terrible now because, like, they make a Transformers movie or whatever, and they put all this money into those effects, 
And once they've paid for those effects and made the investment in them, they're not cutting any of that. So all of a sudden, they have to somehow create exposition to explain all of these, uh, you know, hyper-expensive uh, uh, special effects. And it takes another 80 minutes or 90 minutes of movie, and you get these three-hour and five-minute movies. It's like they can't, they don't dare cut out anything they paid for. This yeah. is kind of the same thing, but instead of cutting out what you paid for, you don't want to cut out someone who you believe is doing great, who could, you know, potentially win a Best Supporting Actor award or whatever. It's like, are we going to just remove this from the movie? Well, we had that with Million Dollar Arm, which I worked on. People are very, people are very scared to cut things out of movies once it gets past a certain point. And Million Dollar Arm was a movie that should have been an hour and 40 minutes because, you know, you want kids to go. It actually was a really good movie that to take your kids to, especially kids my age. But once it gets to two hours, it just becomes threatening to parents because parents are, and you'll, you'll, you'll know this in three years, when parents take a kid to the movie, we look at the movie time and you're, you're processing like, all right, previews are 12 minutes and the movie is, is an hour 30 in the car. And it, that, so that is a two hour, 20 minute commitment. I think I can pull that off with my son. You know, the longer you have your kids in a the theater, the more chance there is like, Oh, I, maybe I shouldn't have given them those M&Ms or whatever's yeah. going to happen. And, and, um, well, I mean, I'm I was, like it already. I like, I almost didn't go to interstellar simply because of the, the runtime. That was the only thing that, that, that made me not want to see it. Isn't you know, it funny? I like, going, but that's what's happening to baseball too, right? Like people yeah. are afraid to go to baseball games now because it's like, oh, it's 45 minutes there. I get to park. The game might be three and a half hours. I get home. Like it's a six-hour commitment potentially. I'm, I'm going to pass. If people run, like people too, think man. about runtime yeah. more than ever. Yeah. yeah. What, I, I had a couple more movie questions for you. Okay. Why did they make Foxcatcher? Did you see Foxcatcher? You know, that is the movie I haven't seen yet that I All want right. to. I have not went. I haven't. Well, just read yet. a magazine article for it, and you'll be good. You'll save yourself two and a half hours. Oh uh, no! I now I now people told me that the performances in it are great, and that that it will sure. change the way I look at Steve Carell. I got to admit, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about Steve Carell, but yeah, I, don't... I can imagine him being good in a real perverse role. He was. He was good. He was good. He was good. Um, Ruffalo was great. That's that's the best Ruffalo in a while. Uh, well, yeah, so here was... again, it's somebody. This, this is, Chris Ryan did this to me too. He basically went through saying everything that was good about it, and then insisted I shouldn't go. Eh. I don't get yeah, it. I mean, <laughs> how can it be good but not worth seeing? It's one of those movies that tantalizes you, and you think more is going to happen, and it's going to take you to a place you're ready to go to, and then it takes you nowhere where, where, whatsoever. It's just a. a matter of fact telling of what happened well, it's now, okay. like it would have been the here's, best here's lifetime movie ever here's something else i heard about this movie that it starts sad and ends sadder is that what you actually don't like i feel like you like movies that are uplifting at the end no not true i it's like mo- true. like if you're going to make a movie like this where everybody already knows the story then i need something else other than just a recounting of what the story was with with really good performances. I feel like that's a, that's a game plan out of the 1980s. You know what I mean? Like, why, why are you making a movie about this? There has to be some underlying reason other than we all know this story and, Hey, let's make a movie and we'll get some good actors and we'll just tell the story from point A to point C. And then the movie's so this, over. So you don't think Foxcatcher reflects anything about human nature or anything like that? I'm, uh, if I go to this movie, I'm not going to be in any, I'm not going to think about anything differently. No. Well, I'm probably no. gonna see it anyways. What's your other I question? Think, I, I think you'll lose you'll lose a little bit of steam 
with uh, with Tatum, who's not that good in it. The kid, well, I think I think he's he's the loser coming out of this. He's, it's weird. He play he. It's almost like he tries too hard to turn the guy into a character. It doesn't totally work. The the one that I haven't seen yet that they just totally screwed up their Oscars marketing plan and now the movie is peaking, but it's peaking like they already, you already finished voting for the Oscars. Like now it feels like the movie has momentum now, but you wanted the movie out of momentum three weeks ago and it didn't is Selma, which um, people at Grantland, we were talking in the meeting yesterday and the people that, that work for Grantland um, thought it was amazing. And unfortunately I think it's probably not going to do that well in the Oscars because it didn't, get that nudge. It didn't get that nudge in time. They somehow screwed it up. I don't understand movies, why they handled it that like way. that tend to do well in award competitions, though. But you're one of those people that you don't care about the Oscars. No, I don't even watch. Yeah. I, I, um, I want to see the uh, the Benedict Cumberbatch movie. That's a good one. it's about a person who I have to admit I know nothing about. I didn't know. My, my wife knew all about this guy. I didn't know anything about this individual. So I'm kind of curious just learning about this person. You know? That's a very um, good movie that won't win the Oscar. What did, what did you think of Boyhood? Well, okay. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if we've ever talked about this before. No, we haven't. Like, I'm excited. Yeah. Um, like a, I have a uh, – there's no director I have more of a personal relationship with than Richard Linklater. Um, I, I mean, I hate when people say things like, oh, punk rock saved my life or this song saved my life. But like when I saw Slacker, it changed my life. Like I had never thought of certain things before. Basically, the idea that you could tell a story without a narrative that had never, ever occurred to me before. I was pretty young when I saw it. I watched it twice, back to back. Like we watched it on, uh, it was me and my roommate at the time, a guy named Rex. Uh, we watched the movie and then we just rewound it and watched it again. So his career, I've always felt it, like everything he's done has been sort of meaningful to me, even yeah. the ones that weren't that good. So uh, when this movie, you know, I think that it may win uh, the Oscar for Best Picture. And if it does, from a technical standpoint, it'll probably be one of the weaker movies to have ever won Best Picture. However, the pure accomplishment of this movie, there's no movie like it. There is no fictional version of a film like this. There are documentaries like this like the 7-Up series, and even like Hoop Dreams, you see these people change over time. There yeah. is no other film like this. This is a completely unique thing. And I think because of that, I, I think it deserves whatever award it gets. Because you can't, you know, it's not like somebody can watch that film and go like, I'm going to do this, without saying, I'm going to invest 12 or 14 years of my life. So, you know, when you watch that film, I'm always sort of amazed by anybody who doesn't think it's kind of good just because it's such a, uh, there's no ex other experience like it. I mean, like, of course it feels emotional. Like how can it not feel emotional to literally watch someone grow up in front of you? Yeah. So I'm torn on it. Cause I, I saw this movie on an airplane, which is the worst place to see any good movie. And I, I really regret that's how I saw the movie. Um, I thought I agree with you. I thought it was an accomplishment and it's the first of its kind in any movie that rips it off. You know, it well, you can't, it first. You, you can't rip it off. Well, like, just I don't the concept of over 12 years. I also, I'm a sucker for movies where characters age over time. I've just always liked those movies. I've always, um, I, I think the accomplishment of the movie 
and how cool it was to watch the characters age, especially Patricia Arquette, who, you know, you really felt like she aged and there was some personal stuff in there with how she aged with the character that I thought was cool. Um, and I thought Ethan Hawke, that was the best he's ever been in a movie. Um, I didn't think the kid was that good. And I think the kid's gotten a free pass because he aged during the movie and had he known and you're not casting, but he's in so much of the movie and he's, he's just not that good. And the only reason he's good is that you're watching him thinking, this is cool. I watched this kid grow up, but just as an actor, he's not that good. And and the scenes with him were a little amateur. I felt like. I guess I would kind of disagree with you. I thought he was pretty good, but I mean, that's not, that, that's just a subjective thing. Um, interestingly, uh, I was on the phone the other day with, a my buddy from college, who uh, he's a pharmacist in Bemidji, Minnesota now, and he saw uh, Boyhood recently, not knowing that it had been filmed over all these years. All he knew it was a Richard Linklater film. Yeah. So hearing his description of watching that movie is kind of amazing. Because I wonder how many, peop- how many people watch that movie not knowing sort of the conceit. I mean, like, what, what he said initially, he was like, boy, that kid looks a lot like the other kid. They did a great, like, a great job casting. Initially, I think he thought the movie was actually moving kind of slow, like, not much is happening. Yeah. Um, and then when he, when it sort of dawned on him that this is what had, done, had happened, they'd actually done this over time, then, you know, everything just immediately shifted. Um, I, 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 to me, it would be like if somebody wrote a book where they wrote one paragraph a day, every day for 30 years, the quality of the writing would sort of be usurped by the idea that they actually did this. And that this is something that like, it doesn't matter what technology you use. It doesn't matter how much money you spend, you know, like you can't buy time. And when there's an investment of time, it is greater than any other investment possible. So I just, I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm pretty. I, I'll, I'll be happy if it sort of uh, is over rewarded, yeah, you know. Despite the fact that there are problems with the film itself, the other thing that I liked about the film, which other people have noted, is that it does something uh, like really cool, which is constantly create situations where our history with movies tells us something bad is going to happen. This kid's going to get hurt now. This, you know, and it never yeah. does. And that's actually how life is. That yeah. If you look back over your life, you constantly can see situations where, like, boy, in retrospect, it was incredibly stupid that I did that. That was really dangerous. I mean, I remember in high school we would ride on top of our cars, you know, like hold on to and drive real fast on these gravel roads. And I can't believe we did it now. Um, you know, someone could have died or easily been paralyzed, but it didn't seem uh, like anything at the time. It wasn't even like a memorable thing we were doing. It was just like, well, uh, once again, we drove around on top of our cars. Well, you know, Linklater, this is obviously a theme he really cares about because this was basically the before Sunrise trilogy. That that was effectively the same idea, although it wasn't Mm -hmm. intended to be that way. But those are three movies about the same couple spread across 20 years, and they're at different you know, the first, the first one's about just the, when people that point in your life when your early twenties and you just believe in true love. And then the second, the second one's about, eh, so maybe I was wrong about true love, you know, oof, maybe, maybe I'm not as idealistic as I used to be. And then the third one is, 
I'm stuck with this person and I'm kind of here. And those are the three themes. And that, and that is really interesting as a collection. I didn't like the ending of the third one. I thought it betrayed the whole series. But um, mm, as those I three think, movies yeah. and those three themes are I, interesting. I the third one was pretty great. Um, the, the thing is that Richard Linklater loved just is the idea of time. Okay, like yes. Slacker, one day. Basically, one day and one night. Uh, Days and Confused, it's almost like classical unity. It's like it all happens in the same span of time. Um, in Waking Life, there's a period where uh, actually it's, it's uh, Julie Devley and uh, Ethan Hawke are in bed together. This is the animated movie. And they're talking about the idea of dream time, how you can like uh, you know look at your clock at, at, at 7.05 in the morning and you fall back asleep. And you have this vivid dream that goes on for you know weeks and weeks in your mind. And then you wake up and it's like 7.14. You've actually only been sleeping eight minutes. But in your mind, you had this expanse of time. And wouldn't it be interesting if that is how the experience of death is like? That when people say their life flashes in front of their eyes, it's because maybe in the moment of your death, you were able to relive the entire 80-some years that you were on Earth, which is like a very well, positive way to think about it. And don't forget Dazed and Confused, last day of high school in the 70s. Hey, didn't I mention that? Did I skip over that one? Oh, maybe you did. My yeah. dog just pushed open the door and, and oh. wandered in and was staring at me as you were doing your home monologue. So I think he's a Linklater fan too. Uh, <laughs> last thing, and then we have to go. The, and this really it really isn't important at all, but I just think you'll – I'd be interested to see what your take is. I don't know if you follow the Leo DiCaprio just going out and getting it done with women kind of era of, of uh, the paparazzi slash blogs, whatever. There's always these photos of – there was one recently of Leo in St. Bart's with four women. He's kind of just – he's now in his 40s and he's still kind of living the same life that he led 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And – I was with my friend Ben watching football this weekend and we were talking about Leo and just how he's set up the rest of his life somehow. And he's, he's still the same guy who's out all the time. And we were saying like, has there ever been somebody in the history of America other than maybe JFK Jr. is the only other person I can think of who, no matter how old he is, it's like more generations of women who are in their maybe from the 20 to 26 range. It's just this never ending crop of women who are in love with him. And it's because of Titanic. And you think about it, Titanic comes out in 97. So anyone who's from the age of like 18 to 30 from that movie, they're in love with Leo and he can have anyone he wants. So now it goes, it hits cable, it hits VHS. Now now we're in like the 2004, 2005 range. Now you have all the 10, 11, and 12, and 13-year-old girls who went to see Titanic seven times. Now they're all in their early 20s. And they're, and they're all like, the highlight of my life would be making out Leo DiCaprio. So now he's got this third generation of women, now that we're in the mid-2010s, Women who were like basically either babies or two or three when Titanic came out. And then when they were like eight or nine, it was the first movie they ever saw or the first movie they started watching over and over again on VHS. And now they're all 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. And they can't believe that they're hanging out with Leo DiCaprio. This guy somehow has three generations of women. And it's what, unprecedented, what, what, Chuck. What, what, uh, well, it is if you – do you, do you think it's directly tied to Titanic? That yes, is, I, yeah. I think it's 100% tied. Well, I think he also, you know, he, he, obviously he's a handsome guy. He's a great actor. He's great at what he does. He's in good movies. He's relevant. He's rich. 
He's somebody that he has, uh, you know, the fear of commitment. He's dated a lot of supermodels. So if you're with him, that means you've vetted some imaginary, um, you've gotten past some imaginary velvet rope of life. You were good enough to be with Leo DiCaprio. Like he's got all that stuff too, but fundamentally it's Titanic. It's, well, he was uh, in yeah, Titanic. Yeah, other, and, like, you know, like Jack Nicholson has sort of been able to live the same life he lived in 1973. Yes. For just decades. Yeah. Um, although that has less to do with any individual or specific role he did and, and sort of the character he seems to play in life. It's a, it's uh, a career. Yeah. That's a charisma play. Leo yeah. Has the charisma plus the looks plus the stature, plus the Titanic. It's it's almost, I would say it's him and JFK Jr. in the finals versus in the in the fictional competition well, of just who could get the most okay. women they wanted. I'm going to, okay, I, I, I'm offering a possible candidate uh, despite the fact that I have no evidence that this is true. Okay. <laughs> like I don't know anything about this guy's personal life. But if you say that, that you know, DiCaprio's, whole sort of sexual career is built around his appearance in this one film. I want, the only person I can think who might have had the same sort of experience is Clark Gable. Oh. Because Gone with the Wind uh, was like the Titanic of its time. That's great. And it was You're often right. the first, you know, it was often the first adult movie anybody saw. And uh, though he was in, you know, numerous roles, that role sort of defines him and defines a certain kind of, of attractiveness to dudes. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't, no, I don't right. know, any, although I have no idea. I've, I, he was married to Carol Lombard, I think. That's the only thing I know about his life. I mean, maybe he was married to her for 50 years for all I know. I have no idea. But it would be, I would be curious well, of what, if, if, if that movie sort of followed him all the way through. Um, but you're I right. I would say I would, and I would say, I would say, Casa, I don't know enough about Casablanca, but maybe that happened with Bogart too, because that's a movie that every girl watched at some point. I felt that there, that it happened. I, I wrote about this that John Cusack for a long time was sort of an idealized person for a lot of women, simply because of the character he was to say anything. Um, didn't but, have, but he, didn't have the looks, and also that didn't have the generational. Well, when and you're eight years that, old, you watch this movie. You he know turned I mean? against it. He like he seemed to actively. I think that he felt that that people were viewing him as if he was like that Dobler character. He was Lloyd Dobler all the time, and so he he went out of his way basically to almost you know annihilate that person. So it would be really strange. I think if a if he met some woman now and she was like you know I loved Lloyd Dobler, he would you know walk away from her. <laughs> right. He uh. Yeah, he's had a weird relationship both with that movie and he's just had a weird career. He seems like kind of a tortured guy and angry like guy. Piven's his best friend and Piven's like this legendary Hollywood asshole and like well, I, also his big buddy is Mark Laner, the writer Mark Laner, who I'm sure you must have probably read in the nineties. And was yeah. like that that's a weird person to be friends with in some ways. But he like they made Hot Top Time Machine and he totally mailed in his performance. It was clear like he was mad at his agent the whole time. And then it was like a smash hit. And and you watch and you think and the whole time you're thinking like why isn't Cusack more into this? He just seems miserable the whole time. It was like watching Kevin Love on the Cavs right now. He's just like get me out of here, get me out of this movie. Uh, but I think Leo's got Leo's basically the perfect package anyway for for somebody that is going to be able to kind of date whoever he wants. But then the Titanic thing is some sort of amazing trump card. So people well, listening also, out there, you know, if you have any other, he doesn't any, make throwaway movies. That's no. a big part of it. He, he, if he's in a movie, 
it's almost like his, just the fact that he's in it somehow suggests that it's kind of meaningful. It doesn't matter how good it is. It's like his, his involvement is, is all that matters. You know? Yeah, and history says that at some point that's going to flip, and all of a sudden he'll be in – you know, whatever his version of the equalizer is. <laughs> Those things, uh, like all I the, know, a lot of I don't know. Choices. <laughs> because he's, it's not, it, it would be one thing if he was only handsome. Like he is a pretty good actor, uh, you know, yeah, and, and uh, there are certain roles that if it's, if it's built for him, that he can sort of elevate it. I think he'll probably continue making maybe one and a half movies a year. And he will, uh, he will be famous late into his life. And like, and I don't mean like everyone, you know, is famous to a degree late in their life when they come back. But he will continually be famous. He will be the example people use uh, when they make entourage type shows. It's like this is kind of like he's the DiCaprio character. Like he will be the default, uh, the de- default example of a really famous man. I'm also always amazed by uh, how tight his circle of friends is, and you know, they they were kind of like this little gang out here, and. uh and nobody's ever spilled secrets. It's it's almost like he kind of figured out early on. I'm going to trust these seven people. These are my people, and that's it. And we're just going to roll. Well, and I got to say that the circle of people who I bet is a pretty high. Um, um, uh, you're highly motivated to keep those secrets. Yeah, you would not want to be cast out of that circle. I feel that's like you how, would lose out a lot if you did. <laughs> that believe me, that's how Joe House feels in my circle. Yeah, think of all the all the eating he'd lose out on. Well, that's true. He doesn't he doesn't spill any of your secrets. He's never, no. you know. I'm I, I'm sure I'm sure one of the one of the kind of the many lesser sports websites would love to do a tell all with Joe House <laughs> breaking down Joe the House. reality behind the curtain, like you know, <laughs> like the dark secrets of your life. But he refuses to. Like you know, J Bug is never pulled into the fray. No. None of these people, you know. I, of course, would be so. totally open to that, though. Anybody oh, you wants could... to you know, do a takedown on you, come to me. <laughs> uh, this is a good way to end it. <laughs> see, see, um, what was the movie you didn't see? I haven't seen Fox yet. Okay. That's it, though? That's the only one you haven't seen? Oh, I I haven't seen the Cumberbatch movie. I haven't, there's a bunch I haven't seen. Because, you know, it's Cumberbatch hard to see is worth now. it. Like, like uh, I mean, I... If I see him, I got to go during the day, um, yeah. but without my wife, or we have to, you know, we have to go separately because we get a babysitter. It takes a lot to get a babysitter to see a movie. Like you really got to think it's going to be good. That's and that's why I really wanted the interview to work for the whole pay per view model. Oh, they I did see up. that. They, I they did didn't... see that. I saw that last Friday. But they they priced it wrong, and they they made it so that people came out of the whole interview thing and thought to themselves. Hmm. Maybe this doesn't totally work. Like I, I've, and it wasn't the right movie either. It wasn't a good movie. I still think that model is going to work. I, I really do. I think that's where things headed, and they just oh, have to like it. A, the, the model of uh, of uh, threatening to kill a world leader in order to uh, to prop up the uh, no, no, <laughs> not, not the script model. The script model was we, a mistake. You know, that's what we should talk about. Do you, like, do you believe that it was North Korea who did those hacks? Well, there's you know how much I love conspiracy theories. There's some great ones going on around this. Now. Yeah, well, there's just not a lot of evidence that North Korea did this besides our government saying it was. And Let's put it this he, way: I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet against a very disgruntled Sony employee. Well, because if, if you're if you're the U.S. government and oh, hello, hello? yeah, oh, okay, if you're the U.S. government and 
this actually happens, if North Korea actually does this, I think your response would be to deny that they succeeded. I think you only say they did it if they didn't, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Like, what, if, it, if it's an unknown terrorist threat, it would seem odd to, uh, to support the idea that they did it if they have not really taken responsibility. You know? I just am I, very skeptical. I also thought it was one of Obama's strangest moments of his whole presidency. There's a guy who, like, tiptoed around Ferguson, basically didn't go out on a limb at all, which I thought was really disappointing, and just, you know, just well, went... It, it, I'm always fascinated by, like, what Obama does comment on. He's like, the Lions right. had a terrible call against him. Know. You know, it's like, I would, ne- I did not anticipate seeing Obama's take on the Lions-Cowboys game. That was very surprising to me. Obama <laughs> handles his presidency with, with, like, kind of in-the-moment American things the same way, like, your buddy would who just texts you about so- stuff. He'd be like, hey, if I text you, like, hey, what do you think of this Sony thing? And Obama's like, I think they should have released the movie. Can't count out of these guys. It's like, wait, you're the president. You can't say that, you dumb. First of all, it was like he didn't have any of the information. Like, Sony got annihilated. I'm not defending, you know, that they pulled the movie, but first of all, 80% of the theaters had already said they weren't going to show it. Sony well, had no payroll system, they had no computer system, they had no email system. It, their their entire company was under attack. Their chairman was getting attacked, and they just kind of they kind of panicked. And they're like, "Well, let's not release this movie right now while we're going through this stuff." Well, and then Obama comes out and takes a shot at him. I thought that was crazy. Well, particularly from the theater's perspective, they don't make money on people seeing the film anyways. They don't care. They don't, they they make it on concessions and all these things. So it's like put right. Annie on another screen. We don't yeah. care. And I'm sure the mall there, and Wesley Morris was telling me about this. Basically, it's like Forever 21 in the mall is like, hey, if you put this movie in theaters and you decrease the amount of shopping traffic the day after Christmas by 2%, we are all in the hurt bag. Just show Annie again. <laughs> like, you know, right. it, it, uh, and that makes, you know, so, I mean, but this is all, you know, people are so, I feel confused about anything that they feel is a free speech issue. Because yeah. they, like, it's it just, you know, yeah, I mean, legally, America has the best free speech laws that, you know, the government will never, in, you know, will stop anybody from publishing it. But the, what has happened as almost all, you know, communication now is so tied into it, to the kind of the, the monetized capitalist side that people will say, like, well, you know, we defend your right to say this. But we will not pay for it. And in fact, we will go on the Internet and try to end your career. Well, that's, that is the same chilling effect as the government stepping in. So when you look at a country in Scandinavia where they actually do have laws um, you know, against hate speech or whatever, yeah. and you think, well, boy, they're not as free. Except that when someone offers a real dangerous idea that doesn't fall under the rubric of hate speech, that idea is actually accepted by the people and considered. That would never happen here. Here we police ourselves into basically stopping ideas from happening if they if they bother us in any way. Yeah, yeah. it's it's turning into a country that we support free speech as long as it's the speech we agree with. Well, it's like we support free speech, but we'll do everything else around it. To, like we'll allow you to say it and then destroy your career, so you have to self censor yourself to not say anything that's uncomfortable. I mean, we. I mean, we could have went in this whole stuff in France. I mean, that's a it's a real complicated deal. Um, 
and yet the reaction to it in the United States, I have just found maddening. And I just, uh, oh, well. Yeah, that's why I don't think social media helps this stuff because social media can can push the nuts and bolts in the 140 characters of whatever the issue is. And, and it's like the snowball that rolls down a hill, you know, well, and yeah, it's, it's, it's not it's, always the right snowball. I, I just, it's, it's not even, it's not even just social media. It's the way, the fact that there used to be a time when people said they didn't like something. Now they say they are offended by it. And when you say you're offended by it, you're basically saying to other like-minded people, if you have the same values as me and you're not offended by this, your taste is in question. In fact, it goes beyond taste. You need to be upset about this. And it can generate this idea that it's not just that, you know, I don't mind if someone is personally offended by something, but why does someone's personal offense have to be collectively offensive? Why do they have to convince themselves that because they are offended, it, they need to protect other people who might be like them? Or to remind them that they should be upset about this. Just... I mean, this this conversation could go on for seven hours, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Yeah, this is supposed to be twenty minutes. <laughs> I, have, I have a lot of thoughts on this topic, but we'll save them for another era. But I do think two thousand fourteen. The two things that stood out for me are, are just the snowball of the way that things can get rolling one way or the other. Um, that was one thing. The other thing is just encryption. And, and hacking and where is this stuff going? What's safe? Do I have to delete every email I've ever sent? Do I have to guard voraciously guard every photo I've ever taken? Like, where does well, this mean, end? And, and I know, think that's not idea. an issue just for a private person, but an issue for somebody who runs a movie studio or runs Apple or runs whoever. Everyone is thinking about that same issue now. It, it is absolutely not unthinkable to imagine a Gmail hack where every single Gmail that was ever been written is suddenly on an open database. Yeah. Boy, will we see people's reactions then. We'll see a lot of people who said one thing say something very differently when that occurs. It's almost inevitable. Yeah. I mean, you think like the, uh, what they call the fappening, that point, that hack or yeah. all the nude photos on the, on the iCloud and all that stuff. Like that was insane. And that was actually undercovered because everybody was afraid to talk about it. But, I mean, man, you just you have these photos in your iCloud that you took with your boyfriend. All of a sudden, they're on the internet. So I, I think. Do you feel safer the, having stayed on? So do think put the fear of God in me. I think I have like one email to Joe House about whether he thinks the Wizards can make the NBA finals. That's probably the only email you'll be able to. Yeah, hack. but when you when you erase the emails on Gmail, though, then it doesn't remember. Like when you start typing an address in, and I really need that because I don't have a contact book or anything. I just trust my ability to half remember people's email and expect mm. Gmail to complete it for me. Chuck Klosterman, always a pleasure. Uh, congrats on, on your su first successful college football playoff. I was really proud of you. I, th I thought you were vindicated in a lot of different ways, and we will talk to you soon. You bet, man. Thank you for downloading the BS Report with Bill Simmons. Too much fun. Check out more podcasts at the iTunes Music Store or at PodCenter at ESPNRadio.com. Peace out.